0: Welcome to December's JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month we're looking at imaging outcomes for trials of remyelination in multiple sclerosis. And joining me to discuss this is Sharik Malik, who's a research fellow at Queen Square. So good afternoon, Sharik. Uh,
1: thank you for having me, Harriet.
0: To, um, to, to set the scene for us, could you explain what exactly you mean in terms of, of remyelination in, in MS?
1: So what we're really talking about here is um, the basic pathology of multiple sclerosis. So if you look at the brains and spinal cords of people with the condition, what you tend to find is a classic demyelinating plaque. And what you see in that is the loss of myelin sheath around the axons. You may also get variable amounts of neuroaxonal loss. You may also have some inflammatory change. But the classical feature is that of loss of myelin. So when we're talking about remyelination, we're talking about restoring the myelin sheath around the axons and that can have a number of favorable effects in terms of the patient's clinical features because by restoring the conductive uh, protective sheath around the axons you can improve conduction and you can improve patient's uh, clinical features but also there's evidence that by restoring the myelin around the axons you can protect the axons itself so it may have a secondary neuroprotective effect and if you look in context of ms therapeutics what you see is that we have a lot of medications which can help with the relapsing remitting type of MS, so helping to re- reduce the number of relapses people have. We also have medications which you can use for symptomatic treatment uh, in multiple sclerosis. So people who have, say, that neuropathic pain or spasticity, we have medications to sort of help with that. What the focus is shifting onto now is, number one, neuroprotection, trying to prevent the progressive phase or trying to slow down the progressive phase of the disease, but also trying to repair the damage done. And that specifically focuses on trying to remyelinate the demyelinated axons.
0: Hmm. So this uh, remyelination, is this something that we see naturally in, in the course of MS or is it something that you, we've had to induce through therapy?
1: I mean, we, we do see it naturally. Uh, And certainly there's been um, a number of studies which look at uh, remyelination and they've actually shown in the earlier stages of MS that some people have shown almost complete remyelination spontaneously. Um, But the problem is that we find it very difficult to predict which people will show that and which lesions and those people will show that amount of remyelination because there are some lesions which don't remyelinate much at all. Um, So there is some variation. What we can say is that there is evidence that constitutional factors such as age, your sex, your disease duration and possibly other genetic factors will affect the amount that you can show re-myelination.
0: Hmm. And then what about the treatments that you mentioned? Um, how far have we got with, with trialling these? Are they, are they currently in use or is it more in the early stages? I mean, there's nothing
1: in use. Uh, hmm. But... Um, Certainly there have been a number of experimental treatments which have been promising in sort of non-human animal models of, of, uh, of demyelination. And I mean, in terms of the actual process of remyelination, the process is well understood. So we know that there are an effect of the oligodendrocyte precursor cells or OPCs which produce oligodendrocytes which then promote remyelination on the demyelinated areas. So there are a number of therapeutic trials which are either happening or are sort of due to occur in humans uh, in the next few years, and all of them use interventions which affect either the OPCs or the oligodendrocytes. So, for instance, you have retinoid X receptor gamma agonists, um, which affect the OPCs. You also have olexacine, which has a number of neuroprotective effects, but... um, specifically also may affect the oligodendrocyte precursor cells then there's mesenchymal stem cells which um, there's been a few studies in the past but actually there's a large one happening at present which is specifically testing its neuroprotective neuro uh, and its um, reparative effects uh, in patients with active MS and then there's other drugs such as anti lingo one monoclonal antibody uh, and WNT signaling pathway modulators which are all in the process of being tested. So in summary we don't really have anything at present that we can give to patients mm. outside of the context of a clinical trial but um, you know in the future we're certainly getting to the stage we're having proof of concept studies if they show promise we may have sort of larger trials. But if you were to ask me when we may see them in actual use clinically, it was probably 10 years away at the very mm. least. Okay. Um, unless something miraculous happens, which mm. can always Right.
0: Um the one problem we've got with these with trialing these kind of um agents at the moment is that we don't have good ways of assessing myelination in the brain is that absolutely. right and that's what your yeah. your your papers looking at
1: absolutely i mean it's it's we're at the stage where if you want to have clinical trials to assess for a specific outcome in this case remyelination you need to make sure you can detect that um, and really my, I mean, the paper that we, we wrote was to try and identify what the best options are at present. Mm. Um, I think I'll I'll start off by saying there's nothing perfect. You know, there's nothing at present which we will be able to say is definitive, which will be one outcome measure that you can use in every case, which will give you a good outcome, uh, a good indication of remyelination in vivo. Um, but we do have promising outcome measures um, uh, using imaging, most of them MRI based. But actually what's, what's very interesting is that um, recently um, in non-human studies, we have had the use of PET, so positron emission tomography using Mm. a specific ligand called Pittsburgh Compound B or PIB and that's been shown to actually be very sensitive to binding to myelin. So that's a potential in the future. Uh, Again, it's it's a little bit problematic because you do get radiation exposure with PET so it may limit its use in repeat scans which is what you might require for these kinds of studies. Um, But certainly if you were to talk about MRI outcomes which are feasible at present, Um, I would identify two which are quite feasible now, especially an outcome measure called Magnetization Transfer Ratio, or MTR. Um, And this is... uh, The MT sequences are actually available on most commercially available scanners, and they take you know, a relatively short amount of time. You're looking at about 10 minutes additional scan time for patients. So that can be quite clinically feasible. And they're relatively easy to do, relatively easy to interpret. And the nice thing is it gives you a nice numerical figure that that correlates very nicely with myelination. So if the MTR drops, it suggests that there's low myelin. And if the MTR increases, Mm. it suggests that there's more myelin or remyelination. And that's been correlated with histopathological studies. So if we had to choose one measure, um, certainly in my opinion, and perhaps other people might disagree to a certain extent, but the most promising would be something like MTR. But there are other things. There are sort of diffusion tensor imaging metrics. um, There's myelin water fraction, um, and there's MR spectroscopy, which all show some specificity towards myelin. But the important thing is that they're much better than the conventional MRI techniques that we use clinically, such as T1-weighted, especially T2-weighted imaging in the Mm. MRI. T2-weighted imaging is good at detecting the lesions, but it cannot differentiate between... Demyelination, neuroexternal loss, inflammation, gliosis, and edema, whereas MTR and the other techniques do have some level of specificity above that. It's not perfect, but at present, this is the best we have.
0: Okay, and is that the same answer whether you're looking at myelination in the brain or the spinal cord or the, the optic nerve? Do they all work equally across these?
1: Essentially, they do. I mean, there are certain uh, issues when you're looking at the spinal cord or the optic nerves. Um, spinal cord, for instance, is a much smaller cross-sectional area in the brain, um, and because of its uh, proximity to things like bone and CSF, you can get uh, different signal, and they can sort of artifact. You can get artifacts as a result of that, and there's ways of correcting for that. But again, you know, the very at the technical level, it's a little bit more difficult to do, uh, and also we don't have as much information. Uh, on the spinal cord, as you do in the brain, because obviously mm. the brain being a much larger area, um, you tend to get much more lesions within the brain that you can study specifically. And the same thing would apply, but to a greater extent, to the optic nerves. The optic nerves are very small, and you get CSF and fat, which may contaminate the signal, and you may get artifacts as a result of that. But again, you can use MTR, you can use DTI metrics in you know the spinal cord uh, and in the optic nerves. Um, the optic nerves are a slightly special case because you can use other measures, including paraclinical measures uh, to detect demyelination. So, for instance, when we see people in clinic who potentially may have optic neuritis or MS, uh, a commonly done test is the visual evoked potential. And um, it's not specifically an imaging measure, it's a paraclinical measure, but it allows us to detect demyelination because if you have increased latencies on the signal, it strongly suggests that there's actually demyelination. Mm. Um, and you can use that in adjunct with a, um, with a, a measure called OCT, or optical current tomography. And so the specific measure of that is retinal nerve fiber layer thickness. And um, if the retinal nerve fiber layer th- uh, is thinned, it suggests that the axons have actually degenerated mm. or they become thinner. Um, And what's interesting is that there have been studies which have shown a correlation between VEP increased latencies and thinning in the retinal nerve fiber layer, which may suggest that loss of myelin can lead to thinning of the actual underlying axon, um, and actually when it comes to trialing agents, it may give the added incentive that actually re- restoring the myelin may have a secondary neuroprotective benefit. So in the, in the optic nerves, you do have those two additional tests, which uh, you can use as a, an adjot measure to imaging um, to give you, you know a, a more complete picture. Okay.
0: okay, so in a way it's really horses for courses and researchers yeah. need to go away and, and look at your yeah. full review and look at the pros and cons of each and, and possibly combine some of these um, ways of assessing myelination.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's, that's a sensible way of doing things.
0: Great, okay. Well, that's uh, very sound advice and listeners really should go away and read the paper because there's, there's so much more information in it that we don't have time to cover today. But do you have any final messages for, for researchers that you'd like them to take away from this?
1: I mean, I think the only thing that I would say is that the focus in the next few years, possibly decades, will be on neuroprotection work and on remyelination work. And as I mentioned previously, it's very important that in order for you to be able to detect a real change of an intervention, you need to make sure your outcome measures are the best they can be. So they Mm. need to be reliable, they need to be reproducible, they need to be sensitive and specific, uh, and they need to be clinically feasible. But also, the design of the trials needs to be thought about before doing them. And, you know, you need to make sure that they're designed in the correct way to actually be able to detect these changes. And, you know, certainly if you were to ask me what I would suggest in the next few years... It may be best to stick to something like MTR and possibly an adjunct, like a DTI metric, when you're looking at the brain. But when you're thinking about you know, imaging the optic nerves and looking for remyelination, it would certainly be a good idea to think about using VEP and OCT as an adjunct measure. But importantly, uh, and I think we shouldn't lose the context of this, is that we need to associate any imaging findings and other investigation findings with the patient's clinical features because you know unless we're studying it with in the context of what the patient is experiencing we're not necessarily getting the whole picture and ultimately if we correlate what's going on with imaging what's going on with the clinical features we may get a better understanding of one the condition but also uh, of remyelination itself
0: very sound advice thanks very much for, for coming in and talking us through it
1: thank you for having me